We are to be of service. I'm going to be of service for you. You be of service for somebody else. And we will change this world. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings, my friends. This is episode number 154 of Sober Speak. And that was the voice of Miss Angie B that you heard again at the beginning of this episode. And you will be hearing so much more from her in just a moment. But first things first, this episode, the one you are listening to right now, right here at this very momento, is brought to you by Terry and Kurt and Ian. Do you know what Terry and Kurt and Ian did? Well, let me inform youans of what they did. They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab in the upper right corner of the website, and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Terry and Kurt and Ian. This episode is coming right out to you from my heart to your generous heart. Thank you. For the resources that you provide, I take that responsibility very seriously. All right, everybody. I, John M., again, will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings. You notice how we have the same chairperson every single time, nonetheless? And I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So, take a seat around this virtual international table, and let's get started. So as I'm recording this, um, I don't know why, but just before I started to record this, I felt very connected to you, my tribe, my people. Um, and when I say my, not like I own, but just the, the group that I am part of, you are the tribe that I so much like to be around, to fellowship with, to communicate with, and I'm feeling especially connected to you today. My friend, Tammy Yu, who has been on 
one of the episodes in the past that we had here. She did a great job. Um, I was in a meeting with her at one time, and she mentioned a scene from the movie My Name is Bill W. with with the actor James Woods. And um, I decided to go and look it up, and uh, I absolutely love the scene that she's talking about. In fact, it's on YouTube, and and I can post it in the show notes for those of you who would like to see it, or if you just want to go watch the whole movie, My Name is Bill W. But there is a scene in the movie where Lois is questioning him about whether any of this, when I say this, um, his alcoholism is her fault. And he looks back at her and uh, he says no. And, and, and he's looking out a window the whole time or most of the time. And he's saying, as he's looked out that window, watching all the people go by, he's always wanted to be like other people. And there's a quote in the middle of it where he says, the alcohol gave me courage to be with people to do things, and to dream. And when I heard that, that just hit me square in my soul. He said he, it gave him courage to be with people, to do things, and to dream. I can remember, oh God, I remember it so vividly, just even driving up to the liquor store or the convenience store where I was going to get a case of beer or whatever I was getting. And I would just, being in that parking lot, I would be able to take a full breath because I knew it was coming next. And I would walk into that store or before I got to that store, I would be restless, irritable, and discontent. And I was depressed and full of anxiety. But as soon as I would start drinking on the way home, something inside of me, all of a sudden I would be able to have visions again and I would be able to dream and I would have goals in my head of where I was going to be and what I was going to be and how I was going to achieve all these goals. Now you like I know, that would only last for a couple of hours and then I would be back in the anger and the depression and I would have to drink again to drown all that out. But When he said that, it gave me courage to be with people, to do things, and to dream. I so, so related to that. I love you guys. The numbers for this podcast, they still continue to increase. I don't know how or why. I wasn't expecting to get to these numbers. I just... Before I started this episode today, I was sitting here praying for you guys. I hope and pray that you get out of this podcast what you need to get. I I pray and hope that we can provide a little bit of hope um, and we can provide a solution for people that need it in all four corners of the world. I know you have so many things that you could be doing with your time And I don't take it for granted that you tune into these episodes and listen to me and my gibberish and mainly the guests that I bring on here. God bless you. Um, Wherever you are today, if no one's told you that they love you, I do. Okay. 
And hopefully that can take you through the next hours or the next day. Keep coming back, folks. It works if you work it. All right. Now on to Angie B, part two. And I'm sure some of you listened in to part, I bet a lot of you tuned in to Angie B, part one we had last week. And the title of this episode and last week's episode is called Story of Hope in Al-Anon. And Angie's going to be addressing uh, several things, but the one of the things she'd address is that the first person, she was the first person in her family to ever get a divorce and experiencing the shame that comes along with that. She talks about AA and Al-Anon being a close-knit family when she got into Al-Anon and what that meant to her and how that helped her recovery. She talks about finding out that her 20-year-old daughter was an alcoholic and how she dealt with that when it came in real close to her, how she dealt with that whole situation. She addresses denial and how that works and how insidious denial can be in in one's life. Uh, Angie says during the middle of this, she says, and I had never heard that this before, but she says, if my name, John, is not in a sentence, it is none of my business. <laughs> and I had never heard it put that way before. She talks about the amends process and how she went that through that with her family, and it's just so beautiful. Now, what you're going to notice is at the end of this episode, she'll be giving out her contact info, uh, and because the internet connection was bad, uh, it went in and out. Uh, however, I will provide her email address that she gave out during listener feedback if you need to have that to get her. And if you don't, and if something happens and you you can't write it down or you're on the road or whatever the case may be, just email me at john, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and I will get you, I will pass your information on to Miss Angie B. All right, everybody, sit back, buckle up. Enjoy the ride, and I will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode for Ewan's. Okay, everybody, so we are sitting here again. We're fortunate enough to be sitting here again with Angie B. from Destin, Florida, of the Al-Anon family group. We did part one with Angie last time, and we uh, didn't quite get all the way through her story, and I was enjoying it so much, I wanted to have her back again and go through part two. I don't know exactly what we're going to title this one yet, Angie, but I'll just call it part two Angie B. for right now. Okay. Uh, so Angie told us last time that she has been in Al-Anon since June 15th of 1990, right at 30 years. And, uh, that's a miracle. I love to hear that. Uh, we talked about her life, uh, her upbringing, uh, as an army brat. We talked a little bit about her upbringing in uh, Alabama, uh, her brother, her mom, her dad, uh, and her 12 years in and out of Al-Anon until she finally stuck it this last time. And we talked a little bit about why some people do come in and stay and others do not. Or she talked about her experience, strength, and hope in that arena. 
And we talked about, the last thing we were talking about was uh, marriage and having an intimate relationship uh, and, you know, the, the male-female type, or I, I guess you could call it male-male-female-female as well, but in particular with Angie, the male-female type. And uh, so, uh, one question that I didn't get to ask you last time, though, I was just thinking about when you said it, though, is that you said you married people based on fear. Mm-hmm. and. I want to know what you mean by that and exactly what kind of form that took. Sure. Some of it, some of it for me was uh, the fear of not being able to make it on my own, which was really kind of ironic because uh, for many years, my marriages were very short term. So for most of my daughter's upbringing, for instance, I was single and I was working. I worked two jobs. I never had any outside financial support and, and I made it. We made it. We were doing it. But I really couldn't see that because of the, the shame and the guilt that I felt. I, I couldn't see that I was doing that. So I, so I was afraid. I was afraid of God. I was afraid if God ever really truly saw me, he would not want me on this earth he had created. I was afraid that I was so much less than other people that uh, he, wouldn't wanna, he would not want me. So I felt like I had to have a man, quote unquote, that could lift me up and bring me up. But truly what happened was that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Uh, But my fear was a a driving force in many of the things that I did. My mind would spin at night when I would go to bed with thoughts and worries and fears. And I didn't know how to make any of that stop. I didn't know how to make it stop. So I know that there are going to be women in particular, I believe, that are listening to this. And listening to you and thinking, it's the same challenge, right? I have to have a man in order to survive. So can you go through that thought process you were thinking about a little bit more to kind of flesh it out just for the people that are listening in that particular situation? Sure. And and I can say for me, I was the first person in my family to get divorced in my immediate and my extended family. My mother told me one time about one of her sisters calling her and saying, what are we going to do? about this shame that Angie's Angeline is bringing to our family. Mm. So, um, so I carried that, that shame and that guilt about that situation that I, that I was less than a woman because I was not able to have a successful marriage. Uh, I was, I was less than a woman because I wasn't able to fix whatever was going on in, in my family with my mother, with my dad. I wasn't able to fix those things. I was always less than, less than, less than. I've never had a problem in this program uh, trying to be uh, equal with people because I thought I was above them. I've always had a problem in this program trying to feel like I'm equal with people because I have always felt less than. Mm. Uh, and, And what I learned was it's my responsibility to feel the same as, not less than. I'm just as much God's kid as anybody else is. I'm not more than, but I'm just as much as God's kid as anybody else. But man, it was hard for me to learn that. And I don't know why it took me so long. You know, it takes what it takes. Um, I'm just glad I stuck around long enough for, for it to take because it finally did. <laughs> and, and then everything started to change. Oh, that's great. I love it. Yeah. So thank you. 
that's exactly what I was uh, hoping for, or not not so much for me, but for yeah, some of the people that are listening. And I, but like you said, we're all God's kids, right? Not less than, not more than. Uh, we're all God's kids. All right. So let's then go back to uh, last time we spoke on episode number one. Uh, you were just now kind of getting into the program of Al-Anon. And we talked a little bit about what made it stick at that particular time. So take me through those early years in Al-Anon and what you were learning there at that time. Sure. For, for me, uh, I went to June 15, 1990. I was going to um, meetings at a, a little town called Level Plains, Alabama. Uh, there's a little red brick building there that's a clubhouse. And at that time, Al-Anon met there, AA met there, a Codependence Anonymous met there. And uh, it, it, was where I, it was where I grew up. It was where I grew up. Uh, I lived in Dothan, Alabama, which was about 40 minutes away. And I drove uh, to Level Plains two, three, sometimes four times a week. I laugh sometimes when people complain. It's a 15-minute drive to have to go to my meeting. I kind of laugh at that. <laughs> uh, because for, for over 20 years, I drove that 40-minute drive one way uh, a number of times every week. Uh, and, and I grew up in that little clubhouse. You know, um, at that time, AA and Al-Anon, we were, um, we were a family. We were a family. We had a joint eating meeting once a month. We had a, a joint candlelight Sunday night gratitude meeting together every Sunday night. We would rent a house on Lake, uh, up at the lake, like Eufaula, and we would all go up there together. There would be 30 or 40 of us. You would not know who was Al-Anon, who was AA. We would have a big book study weekend or a 12 and 12 weekend or a promise weekend. We'd all take sleeping bags and food and Oh, I grew up. I learned how to be a loving mother, a loving wife by watching people in recovery. I learned what it meant to, I learned how to have a friend. I learned how to have a man as a friend that a man could love me and not want to have sex with me. I learned that a man could be my protector. I learned everything about relationships and family from being part of that family of recovery. And, you know, sometimes it really just causes me heartache that I don't see so much of that anymore. And, and when people sometimes will say to me, well, we want to do that. And I say back to them, well, then do it. Right. Just do it. Invite some Alanons to your house for a potluck dinner or invite some AAs to go to the movie with you or start little. You don't have to start with a weekend retreat. You can start little. You know, we, we get sick together and, and we need to get well together because I needed those role models. Not just the women in the Al-Anon room. Those were wonderful role models. But I needed more than that, especially men. I needed to see good men. I needed to see what, it, what a good man looked like. I needed to see what a man of value looked like, what a man of, of dignity looked like. And that was given to me by, by AA. It was given to me. And when I first really got back in Al-Anon, you know, I knew I wanted that spiritual awakening. I wanted to work the steps the way that I knew I needed to work them. But I didn't really know what the spiritual awakening was going to look like. And so one night we were at that eating meeting, and I heard for the first time an AA member read the promises on pages 83 and 84 of the third step, of the third edition. And I just started crying, and Debbie, Debbie said, what's going on? And I said, oh, my God, 
I want those promises. You see, I could understand those promises. We will not forget the past and I wish to shut the door on it. I knew exactly what that meant. I knew what every one of those promises meant. And that's what I wanted. So I clung to that until I could work enough of the steps to see the spiritual awakening start happening in my life. Until I could start experiencing it and living it and seeing it. I clung to those promises in AA. And Debbie said, I could do that. She said, you can have that. And Debbie was in Al-Anon. She said, you can have that. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, that we can have that. Whether we're in AA, whether we're in Al-Anon, we can have that. You were making me tear up when you were talking about uh, how we all serve as examples for each other and about how we grow up together and about how we help each other. What, what happened and what, where did that because I remember that too when I first got sober. I, I you, I don't think you know this, but I've been sober since '89, uh, uh, and I remember the AAs and the Alanons used to hang out a lot more. I, you know, we would kid each other, make a lot of jokes about each other, and just have fun. and And that's the reason, one of the reasons that I like Crest Butte so much is that because it's AA and it's Alanon and it's all mixed together, and you can't tell who's who's who and what's what, but why or how did some of that drift apart? Have you given that any thought? You know, I really don't have any idea because I went to Level Plains for 20 years. And then it was like when I shifted and went to a, a new group, it was like the whole world had changed for me. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, but, but, I, but I will say this. I think the whole world has changed in, in, the, in, the, in the 30 years I've been in Al-Anon. I believe the whole world has changed. And so as the whole world has changed, of course, recovery has changed. I don't necessarily think it's recovery that started changing as much as the world changed. And that is reflected in, in recovery changing. Mm. But, you know, we can get back to that. Just because the world does what the world does doesn't mean we have to do. As a matter of fact, in some ways, we're taught not to do what the world does, to be different than what the world does. And I think maybe, maybe that's a message that we're not getting out there enough or we're not carrying out there enough. You know, I, I'm probably getting real off track here, but I've had to unfriend people on Facebook that are in recovery, that are, that are saying such divisive things and harmful things and hurtful things. That, and I think, you know, I'm not supposed to judge, but I'll think, wow, where's their sponsor? Where's their God? Where's their program, you know? We're supposed to be people of dignity and humanity and grace. And where in the heck is that gone? Mm. So we can get that back. We can, but we're going to have to work at it. It's not going to be given to us on a silver platter. I believe when I came into recovery, it was given to me on a silver platter. It truly was the greatest generation that came before me. And it was given to me on a silver platter. Today, I don't believe it's given to us on a silver platter anymore. We have to work for it. We have to expect it of people that we sponsor. We have to demand that dignity and grace and honor and love of fellow humans. That's, to me, what I need to be about. I don't know if you want to hear that, John. <laughs> oh, no, no, I love it. I know, I love it. Preach on, sister. 
All right, let me take a real quick break here. We'll get back. Uh, We'll be continuing our conversation with Angie in just a moment. Just a reminder, you were listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you can also find the donate button, which you can use if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. We are self Sober Speak is self-supporting through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization organization or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right. Now back to Miss Angie B from Destin, Florida. All right. I know you're starting to get you're, you're in Al-Anon. Yes. You have some wreckage from the past in terms of your relationships, right? And when, when I'm talking about the relationships, I'm more thinking about some of your family mm-hmm. and how you went about navigating mm-hmm. mom, dad, mm-hmm. brother, and anybody else. So I'll sure. let you kind of take it in the order you want to take it there. Okay. I can tell you that I had been back in Aladon for about a year when, um, when I learned that my daughter was alcoholic. And, and that was uh, quite a devastating revelation for me. And she how old was going, she at the time? She was 20. She was going to the University of Alabama. She was uh, playing in the Million Dollar Band. I had absolutely no idea at all that she was alcoholic. Is the Million Dollar Band the Alabama Crimson uh-huh. Tide Band? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> yes. She told me that she had written a few bad checks. And so to make a long story short, she ended up in a, in a treatment center in uh, Mobile, Alabama, at a, a place called Providence Hospital. Half of the of a floor on the hospital was for persons with a mental illness, and half of the floor was for persons with uh, alcohol or drug issues. We thought that maybe she had a mental illness, so she was placed on the floor section for for persons with a mental illness. And then about I would guess maybe three weeks later, she told me that she was alcoholic, and they just shifted her from the from the part of the floor for persons with a mental illness to the part of the floor for persons with alcohol or drug issues. And, and for me, um, that was the worst thing that she could have told me. She told me some pretty devastating things about her life, but that was the worst because I had been running from the disease of alcoholism and to the disease of alcoholism all my life. And I knew that day that I had a decision to make. And when I came home that day, I fell on my knees and I took step one in a way that I had never taken it before. I knew my life was unmanageable. I could see the unmanageability everywhere, but I did not want to admit I was powerless. I don't know why, but I just clung to that fantasy that I wasn't. But that day I gave it up. And then that Tuesday night I went to the meeting and I asked David to be my sponsor and we dove into the steps in a way that I had never done before. And, and I was pretty much off and running from that point to today with the program of Al-Anon, with, with working those steps, with doing the things that I knew I needed to do uh, and, and, and have really never looked back since that day. Did that completely catch you off guard or did you have some sort of inkling? Yes. No, I had no inkling. You know, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell a quick story here that'll, that will uh, demonstrate how denial works in my life. Amanda had been through treatment and she was getting out and I picked her up and and my mother knew that she had been in treatment. My family knew, they knew that she was alcoholic. So we went by my mother's house for her to see her. My daughter stayed in treatment two months and I was the only family member that saw her during that time. So 
I took her by my, my mother's house. So we get out of the car and we walked inside and, and we walked down a hall and then we turned left and we were to the we were at the kitchen. And my mother and my brother were sitting there and they were drinking Bloody Marys. Now I had never seen my family drink Bloody Marys before, but they had Bloody Marys with the celery stick and everything, and they knew that my daughter had just got out of treatment and were coming to see them. Well, needless to say, we didn't stay very long because I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed for my daughter and for me. So we left and we walked back down that hall and there in front of the front door was a big milk carton full of fifths of liquor, all kinds of liquor. There was a turkey on one bottle and there was some uh, kind of crown on another bottle and there were all these bottles and they had face towels between them to keep them from breaking. I bet there was for a probably 16 fifths of liquor in this big crate right in front of the front door. We had to step way over it to get out. <laughs> so we get in the car, you know, I'm so embarrassed and I'm just burst out crying. I'm so embarrassed. And I'm just telling my daughter, I can't believe it. I'm so sorry. I can't believe we had to walk over that crate to get out of the house. And she just starts laughing. And I mean, she is laughing so hard. She's crying. And I said, Amanda, what is it? She said, mama, we stepped over that crate going into the house. Uh, and I said, no, we did not. She said, yes, ma'am, we did. She said, mm. I ought to know, Mama. We stepped over that crate going into the house. Well, I knew she was telling me the truth because nobody was there but my mother and my brother, and they had sat at the table with us the whole time we were there. Mm -hmm. That's how denial works in my life. I did not want to see that crate of liquor going into that house because look at all the issues that would have come up. So guess what? I just didn't see it. Mm. I just didn't see it. So I understand denial and know how that works. <laughs> so you had no idea. You find out that your daughter is alcoholic. Yes. Okay. Take me from there. Uh, what okay. I'll tell you two quick stories. If we, if we have time. No, you're one, fine. One is um, Amanda had been living with me a couple of months. And I came home one day and um, I had a contract with her because I needed a contract because I come from a long line of martyrs. And the contract said things like, I agreed that I would not have men spend the night in our home. She agreed she would not have men spend the night in our home if she came to live with me. I agreed uh, to let her stay with me. She agreed to pay $100 a month rent. I agreed to buy groceries. She agreed to cook three nights a week. See, for everything I did, she did. So we were even Steven. So I couldn't martyr about that. So uh, she'd been living with me for a couple of months and I came home one day and she said, Mama, you know, I've been doing everything. I'm going to my meetings. I have a sponsor. I'm working the steps. I've got six part-time jobs. I'm doing all this stuff. I just don't think I'm going to have the rent money tomorrow. And so I said, well, Amanda, it's okay if you don't have the rent money. Because you see, before you came to stay with me, I talked to the Salvation Army here in Dothan. And they told me that I could drop you off anytime. And they would give you two hots and a cot. So when I get home tomorrow, if the rent money's not on the table, that's okay. I'm still going to be your mother. I'm still going to love you. We'll still do things together. But you will never live with me again because you will have broke our contract. And you're going to be at the Salvation Army. And I said, anything you want, you better take because whatever you leave here is going to be mine. Well, you can imagine her eyes were big as dinner plates about that. <laughs> and so I walked in the bathroom and I got in the shower and I just boo-hooed because I knew I could do that. I knew I could. You see, there were some times in her life that I would say things to Amanda that I would not say to the checkout clerk at the grocery store. There were some times I would use a tone of voice with her that I wouldn't use with a teller at the bank. 
there were some times that I would shrug my shoulders or roll my eyes or do all that stuff that we know how to do that I wouldn't do to a stranger sitting next to me on a plane. Mm. But I knew that day that I never wanted to be that woman again. And I believed that I could finally see my daughter as a woman deserving of grace and dignity and respect. And, you know, if any of us had a contract with each other and one of us broke it, there would be consequences for that. That's, that's how the world is. Mm-hmm. And my daughter deserved that same respect, that same dignity, that same grace. And I could see that. When I got home the next day, the rent money was on the table and it was there every month until she moved out. Hmm. Another thing I learned that year goes like this. If my name's not in the sentence, it is none of my business. If your name's not in a sentence, it's none of your business. none of my business. And it works like this. I would say to Debbie sometimes, boy, Debbie, I wonder if Amanda's going to her meetings. And Debbie would say, Angie, your name is not in that sentence. (laughs) So then I would say, Boy, I wonder if Amanda, Angie's daughter, is going to her meetings. <laughs> and Debbie would just laugh like you're laughing right now. And she'd say, no, your name is not in that sentence. <laughs> and it wasn't. And here's some other sentences that don't have my name. Is Amanda working the steps? Does Amanda have a sponsor? Is Amanda being of service to God and her fellows? And as the years have gone on, is Amanda being a loving wife? Is Amanda being a kind mother? Is Amanda being an upstanding citizen? My name is in none of those sentences. Mm. But here are sentences that do have my name. Is Angie going to her meetings? Does Angie have a sponsor? Is Angie working her steps? Is Angie being of service to God and her fellows? Is Angie being a loving wife? Is Angie being an awesome grandmother? Is Angie being a fine, upstanding citizen? Is Angie being a woman of dignity and grace and love? I learned that my, my name was in enough sentences that I just didn't have much time left over to worry about those that did not have my name. Mm-hmm. My name's in a lot of sentences. So that's a couple of stories about me and Amanda in our first uh, first year of recovery. But that thing about my name not being in the sentence, I still am learning that today. <laughs> I hear you. What about your mom? We talked about her in the last episode. And uh, how did that play out? And part of that is I want to know if she's still with us, but you, okay. maybe you can let me know. Sure. My, my mother never got in recovery, but she did not drink the last, about the last two years of her life. She had uh, COPD and emphysema that got quite serious. And so she could no longer drive to buy the alcohol. So she said she couldn't drive to get it. She didn't drink, but she was not in recovery. I could never have done any of that if it was not for the program of, of Al-Anon and for the program, I have to say, of Open AA. That's how I learned to be a loving daughter and could be a loving daughter to her. One day we were at my house and, and we were talking and all of a sudden she said, I know you talk about me when you speak. And I, and I need to probably mention the people that I do talk about have given their approval for me to do that. Uh, but at that time I did, really didn't talk about my mother. So I said, no ma'am, I really don't talk about you. And she said, I know you do. And I said, no ma'am, I really don't. And she said, well, I know you talk about when I used to be. you. And you know, that is something that I never ever wanted to talk about ever. And I said, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, I know you talk about when I used to beat you. And I thought, God, we're here. And I said, no, ma'am, I don't talk about that. And then she said, well, you know, I didn't beat you every day. Mm. So I turned around and looked at her and I said, no, ma'am, you didn't beat me every day. And one day was one day too many. 
And you know, I heard a speaker say one time that she thought God allowed her to see her mother the way she thought God probably saw her mother. And I'm so grateful that that's what happened to me that day when I was looking at my mother after I said that. You know, my mother had always appeared to me to be about 60 feet tall. And that day I saw this little 84-year-old, tiny, withered woman, tiny, humped over the oxygen tubes in her nose, the oxygen tank pumping, a, a stoic woman, a hard woman, a woman that had lived her life behind a 10-foot concrete wall that nothing could get in and nothing could get out. A woman that could be whoever she needed to be, whenever she needed to be it, a smart woman, a brilliant uh, officer's wife, brilliant officer's wife, a woman who was scared, a woman who had lived most of her adult, all of her adult life, I would say, in shame and guilt. And I realized that I was look, looking at what had been without the problem of Al-Anon. And so I went to my mother and I knelt down in front of her and I said, hey, Mama, I said, I want you to know I have forgiven you for that. I have forgiven you for every drop of blood, every hit, every lick, every scab, everything. I said, do you remember that day I came to see you and talk with you about things that I had done to you? ways that I had harmed you and I wanted to make things right. And she said, yes. And I said, I had already forgiven you that day. You see, when I did steps eight and nine, my sponsor, Debbie, when I had that step eight list, there were people on that list that I had certainly harmed. But there were also people that had harmed me as well. And Debbie said, we've got work to do here because we've got to work on forgiveness because before you can go make amends, you've got to be able to go with a pure heart so that whatever they say or whatever they do, you will do your your part, and you will be a woman of grace. So I had really worked on forgiving my mother, but you see, I'd never told her that. And that's why that's why sometimes I talk about forgiveness, because I know that day my mother reached a new level of freedom. And I know I reached a new level of freedom that day, too. After I told her I had forgiven her, she started crying. And I, probably the second time in my life I'd seen my mother crying. She was 84. I cried. She cried. We hugged each other. We told each other we loved each other. And we both had a new level of freedom that day. Uh, my mom died not, not too long after that. She died in 2010. But, you know, she died as, as a woman that has served as an example for many, many, many other women. Many other women and many other mothers and many other daughters. And she has certainly served as an example of forgiveness. Oh, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that, Angie. What about your father? What about your brother? Uh, my father, you know, I, I have to acknowledge that my father was an untreated Alanon. <laughs> so he was kind of oblivious to a lot of things. Uh, but, but I will say this. Uh, my, dad, my dad and mom divorced after 30 years of marriage. I, I, my, my father would, would say that they had problems. I think it, some of those problems were because my father would just never acknowledge the, the issues in, the, in his marriage and our home because, because of my mother's drinking. Um, you know, when I worked the steps, I, I thought I had all these issues about my mother, and I did. But, man, when I got through working all those, here came all this stuff about my dad that just kind of blew me away. Wow. You know, because he, he, he was the person that never hurt me, never harmed me. But, you know, he was also the person that never protected me mm. and never helped me. And was just kind of oblivious and went through life just oblivious to, to what was going on right in front of him. So um, I really had a lot of issues to work through about him. 
but there were none that I had to, except for doing my step nine with him, there were none that I had to talk with him about or work through with him about. I just had to do my part of those feelings I had when they came rushing at me about how he had not protected me or kept me safe. And, and then my brother, um, my brother and I have had a very interesting relationship because he's so much older than me. We were never very close and I always wanted to be close to him. I always did. But um, I know today that one reason I wanted to be close to him was because I just wanted to figure us out. There were issues with my brother growing up that I could never get a handle on. I, I, I could never figure them out. And I thought by getting closer to him, maybe I could. Uh, we were able to get kind of closer uh, in, in, in a strange way. Um, my brother and, and his two daughters and my daughter and my mom and his wife were all sitting around my mom's kitchen table one day before she died. And my brother shared with us out of the blue that he had never read a book. And so come to find out he, he was dyslexic. He didn't even know what that word meant, but he was dyslexic. And so, uh, and here you are, the book reader, like yeah. hiding yourself in books and reading yeah. uh, like like crazy, and he's never yes. read a book. And my brother is more stoic and, and private than my mother. So for him to even say, well, you know, I've never read a book was a huge thing. And so as a result of that, he did agree that I could send him a book on tape. So that uh, next week I went to the bookstore and I was standing there looking at the books on tape thinking, what do you buy for a 56, I think it's about 56, a 56 year old man's first book. And so I bought him a James Patterson book and I sent it to him and I promise this has to do with recovery. I sent it to him and about a week later he called me and he was crying on the phone and he said, Angie, I have, he calls it reading. He said, I have just read my first book and it was wonderful. When can you send me another one? So for over a year, he just about broke me financially. You know, they're kind of expensive, but he was doing them all the time. He had a lot of catching up to do. A lot of catching up to do. I mean, his his wife says, I've created a monster. They have books on tape everywhere. Um, A few years after that, he thank God, he called me one day and he said, you'll never believe what I did today. And I said, what? He said, I bought my own book. I was like, yay. Yay. You know? (laughs) And then uh, last year, he discovered the public library, and that is a whole new world for him. He's just so happy. And sometimes he'll read a book by an author that I really like before I, get, before I read it. I'm, I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? <laughs> well, you see, I had tried for years to get close to my brother. I tried to learn about sports. I tried to learn about science. I tried to talk to him about all that stuff, and it just went nowhere. My whole life, it went nowhere. Well, we had a God box at my Al-Anon group, G-O-D-B-O-X. And every meeting, people would pass it around. And if you, if you were tired of hanging on to something and really let go of it, you could write it down on that piece of paper and put it in that God box. And one night I had written down my brother's name, Glenn, and I had put it in that God box. You see, once I finally let go and gave it to God, God brought my brother into my world of books. Mm. He brought a dyslexic man into my world of books. And so I say to people sometimes, you know, if you think your, your program's not where you want it to be, maybe you're not sponsoring anybody right now, maybe it's just feeling kind of stale and you think, oh, I don't know. I don't really know if this is for me. I don't really know if this is what I want to do. Please stay. My brother has never been to any kind of recovery meeting. 
But he tells me to say every time I speak, thank you from him. Thank you. You have rocked his world. And you know, the way you set up chairs at a meeting next week may put two people together that otherwise would never have sat together. And the things they talk about and the relationship they form may change both of their families for generation after generation after generation. The way you hold out your hand and meet somebody at a conference or a roundup or a meeting, and you just have your presence with them. You know, some 40 years from today, somebody may be on a podcast or behind a podium and describe everything about that event the way I talked about Miss Ina. We don't know. We don't know what miracles we're part of, but I can promise you this, you're part of some. You are part of some. Don't keep those miracles from happening. We are to be of service to God and to our fellows. Please continue that service. God bless you, Miss Angie. Um, Is there anything... First of all, have you ever been on a podcast before? That- no, this is the first for me. <laughs> well, that's it's great. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I certainly have. Uh, your story is going to... I know it's already been heard by so, so many people just from all the speaking that you do at conferences, but uh, there will be a lot of people listening to this in all four corners of the world. Is there anything that you want to say about Al-Anon or your life in recovery to kind of wrap this up? Uh, I, I think probably just don't stop. Just don't stop. Be of service to God and your fellows and be a, be a person of humanity and of dignity and of grace and of love. And I want to say this, too, because I would say this if we were at a conference and somebody asked, can I give my contact information? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Of course. Okay. My phone number is 850-612-0383. My email address is all one word, all little letters, H-G-I-E-B-O-W-D-R-E-N at gmail.com. We are to be of service. I'm going to be of service for you. You be of service for somebody else, and we will change this world. God bless you. All right, I'm going to read 164 from the big book to close us out. Page 164 says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Miss Angie, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Angie, thank you so much for coming in here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Angie, you are absolutely the best. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and sharing your insight and wisdom with the Sober Speak listeners. Now, remember, we don't want you sharing gossip. And we don't want you sharing your STD, but we do want you sharing this episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today, so pause your device and share it with them. Um, You may just make their day.
All right. So some of you heard Angie kind of going through her email address at the end of that episode there. And uh, the internet was spotty. So just in case you do need to get in touch with her, I think you, she gave out her phone number. Uh, but their email address is the, T-H-E, Angie, A-N-G-I-E, Baldrin, B-O-W-D as in David, R-E-N, at gmail.com. If you don't remember that, just remember John, J-O-H-N, at Soberspeak.com. You can write me an email and I will get you passed on to Miss Angie B. Now... On to a little bit of a listener feedback. Barry writes in, and Barry says, Howdy from London. And he spelled the word howdy wrong. (laughs) H-O-W-D-E-Y. That is hilarious. Yo, Brits. Anyway, he says, hello there, John. London calling. London calling. It's Barry from across the pond. Well, hello, Barry. You can't see me right now, but I'm waving two hands way up high. And he says, another day in partial lockdown and another day sober, exclamation point. And hey, Tomorrow, so he wrote this on a Wednesday. He says, and hey, tomorrow's Thursday, which means the next day is Friday, which mean, uh, which means only one thing for sure. He spelled it out. That's right, folks. Before we get started, first things first, triple exclamation point. <laughs> and perhaps we could even squeeze in a contribution. And he spells it all out phonetically. It's Sober Speak time with your host, John M. <laughs> so I don't know if you realize this, but Barry is mocking me and the introduction that I have at the beginning of most episodes. And then he puts out a little, a big smiley face with a gun, with a guy wearing sun fa- sunglasses, a, a prayer hands, a thumbs up, a, a rainbow with clouds in it, and then a laughing guy with tears coming out. Every emoji that, that, one could think of to be positive, probably. I don't know. There's probably more, but you know what I'm saying. Well, you know, Barry, that's bloody brilliant, you bloke. You're being cheeky with me, aren't you, chap? Am I right? <laughs> so anyway, thank you, Barry, for writing in from across the pond and being bloody brilliant, you bloke. Don writes in and he says, John, I live in L.A. Now, I think L.A. is Los Angeles. Uh, It could be Louisiana, but I got a feeling this is in L.A., if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, been sober since 12-24 of 2019. I am a member of ACOA, and for those of you not familiar with that, that is Adult Children of Alcoholics. And he says, I have never attended an AA meeting. I identify as an alcoholic, but didn't struggle with all at stopping drinking. My issues were mostly about a difficult childhood. I enjoy the podcast and listen most weeks. Appreciate your service, Don C. Well, thanks for listening in, Don C. And thank you for your kind words. Steph C. I think that's short for Stephanie, if I'm not 
mistaken. Anyway, Steph, S-T-E-P-H-C writes in and she says, hello, John, I want to thank you for your Sober Speak podcast. I get so much out, oh, I got so much out of episode number 147 with Vinoy S. I would love to be in your Super Secret Facebook group. Well, of course, Steph, and I know you're in there. Also, a surprise by one of your callers. Oh, this is somebody who had uh, written in or actually called in at one point. I can't remember for sure. But anyway, she says, the guy who had weight loss surgery and started drinking, exclamation point. Short story is I was born into the disease of alcoholism. My grandfather, uncles, sister, nephew, and uh, and, and was was it were alcoholics and mom was mentally ill or an untreated ACA slash D uh, that's adult children of alcoholics slash D I don't know what that D is. anyway dad was an untreated Al-Anon I married into it and my oldest may have something I also have that problem your email guy had. I am fine as long as I abstain from alcohol or severely control it. But I had a similar situation when I was treated for depression. I was on Zoloft and my doc said no drinking. And boom, I did the Thanksgiving thing, excuse me, and I was hooked for a while for about a year. For me, getting off the medication was helpful. I think it was more in despair than depression, uh, but that's for me. I choose to abstain, but anyway, eventually I returned to a recommendation from years ago. So currently, I am an Al-Anon, ACA slash D, and also OA, which is uh, Overeaters Anonymous. I need the 12 steps, big O heart. I had one therapist who recognized the ACA slash Al-Anon connection 30 years ago. Oh, I wish I had continued with her. Anyhow, I especially love the groups that include the big book for that reason. We are taught alcoholism is a family disease, so it only makes sense to use the big book. Thank you so much. Big heart, Steph C. Thank you, Steph C. And it sounds like you are on the right path. Thank you so much for writing in. All right, everybody. That's it, a wrap for another week on the um, on the <laughs> on the Sober Speak podcast. I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, you would think I would have it kind of down by this point after 154 episodes, but you know what? It's like sobriety. We're we're working on it all the time. Oh, you know what I'm going to do right here at the end of this podcast. I am going to play for you. I just forgot about this and I have to go edit. I have to go find it and put it in the uh, podcast. But there is a gentleman, his name is Kamal, who has provided me some, uh, Oh gosh, I don't even know what you call them. They're 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 people in a real classical way, uh, orchestra orchestral way. Is that a word? Um, that have come up with the slogans, and I'm going to start to put some of these on the back end of the podcast, just so you can hear them. I'd be curious to know what you think. Uh, and uh, this one, I think I'm going to pull out. Uh, Got to go do it right now. Sorry. Is uh, one day at a time. So you'll hear this, and these are folks uh, that are singing one day at a time, okay? 
Enjoy it. You take care, folks. Once again, we're one week at a time. Hope to see you next week. God bless you. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Now, here's the musical version. Okay.